Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect and analyze the amazing and stupendous and epic power of storytelling and learn how to harness this power to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorf. And I'm Kevin. <sighs> Kevin, this is a this is a really fun episode. I'm really excited. You know, one one note about it though um, is throughout the episode you might you might hear some background noise. Um, that's because I am currently in my childhood home in Toronto, and next door, during our recording, like I, I'm talking like 8 p.m. Canadian time. It's Canadian Thanksgiving. There are these like fifth and sixth graders turning up, and I mean. They had a DJ. They had strobe lights. They had like those like inflatable things. These kids are like turning up, Kev. It definitely sounded like more partying than both of us did for like the last two years of our undergrad. So yeah. when we tell you this is a fun episode, like you could literally hear all the fun that's going on. Yeah, we're we're just sitting in in our rooms talking about cognitive psychology and neuroscience and. And across the way, there's these kids just living their best lives. Live your best lives, children. This is good for you. Anyways. So, Kev, who are we talking about today? <laughs> today, we are talking to Dr. Sahar Yusuf. Uh, she is a cognitive neuroscience uh, as well as faculty at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. She has conducted research on brain plasticity, human performance enhancement, and cognitive training. Uh, her current consulting practice helps business executives, creators, and engineers become more productive and effective at work. Outside of academics, uh, Dr. Sahar Yusuf also runs a program called Becoming Superhuman. We're going to get into what that means, but basically, she trains superhuman uh, to get them um, to be more productive, uh, which we will also get into the meaning of. You know, Kev, one note I want to make quickly is when we started this podcast, we made it a fact that we would make sure we also talk about internal storytelling because through my own mindfulness practice and meditation, I've learned how important it is, the stories we tell ourselves. So this is one of those key episodes where we get to dive deep into the stories we tell ourselves. But let's get to our conversation with Sahar. Today, we are so glad to be joined by Dr. Sahar Yusuf, uh, who is a superhuman. And we'll get into the meaning of that in just a bit. I would tell you her story, but I should really leave it up to her to tell her own story. So, uh, Sahar, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? (laughs) <laughs> will do and I don't know if I can uh really uh, own up to, to being a superhuman but a human I will I will I will take I will take that um so uh, my name is uh, Sahar Youssef I am a cognitive neuroscientist by training and I am a faculty member at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and my background is in studying brains I study how humans work uh, and it's been my obsession and my passion for Uh, a very, very great number of years now. And my work currently is focused on the study of productivity and performance. So I study basic biology. I study how the brain actually operates and works. And I apply that to how people get work done. So I apply that to how we work at the team and organizational level. 
um, and also how we live our lives and how we kind of optimize our, our, our work lives. Um, so I study really the science of how you can get more done in less time with less stress. That is always the goal for my lab. Um, and and, and uh, the, the work that I do has been colloquially called the Becoming Superhuman Lab or research team. And there's a reason, there's a, there's a little bit of, and I know you all love storytelling. So I will tell a story about the name Becoming Superhuman because I would never, I cannot take credit for that name. So that has marketing lit, written all over it. And I've had the distinct pleasure of having a lot of students that are far more creative than I am uh, who have helped give a cooler name uh, to the to the lab. So the becoming becoming superhuman lab, first and foremost, let's unpack superhuman. Uh, my belief is that in accepting and embracing all of the ways in which we are human, can we really actually become superhuman? There's no actual superhuman. It is working in line with our basic biology. It's knowing how our brains and our bodies work best and leveraging that to the best of our abilities. It's leveraging what we already have our unique talents and working again in line with our basic biology as opposed to against it through riding our waves um, as opposed to kind of crashing against them. So that's the superhuman piece. And the, 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 the word becoming is truly of utmost importance here because we do not become superhuman. We don't check that box. We don't check that box and move on. We don't say, okay, great, I've achieved whatever it is I'm, I'm trying to achieve in this pursuit of being the best version of myself. And now I am the best version of myself and I'm done now and I get to walk away. This is a lifelong pursuit. It's a mindset. And it's a mindset I like to encourage all of my students to employ for the rest of their lives. And that mindset is very much something very close to, I would say, the, the Haas principles as well. Questioning the status quo. Questioning the status quo. Always asking ourselves, why? How can I go beyond myself? How can I be a better version of myself? It is a constant stoic challenge to continue to question, learn, and evolve. So there's a, it's a, that word becoming was very, very important to, to myself, to my colleagues as well. And that this is really, again, this mindset shift. Becoming superhuman is a way of life. And it's very individual and it has absolutely nothing to do with checking boxes and it has absolutely nothing to do with actually being superhuman. <laughs> uh, we talked a little bit before about the questions we are coming up with for you about how every single one can be its own podcast. And I'm trying not to dive into stoicism uh, right now, but you brought up a lot of interesting points and something that I loved was this idea of um, getting more done with less stress. Um, I'm a person who's an avid believe in mindfulness and meditation. It's actually where I first started seeing your content because I'm a daily user of Headspace and I'm obsessed with the app. Um, so, and something that I learned a lot through meditation, something that we talk a lot about on the show is getting trapped in our own storylines, getting trapped in our own stories. And I would love to kind of dive deep right off the bat with you on that uh, through what you're talking about, but getting more done with less stress. And it's why it's so important that we designate with less stress. Oh, I love that. And I'm so happy to hear that you're an avid Headspace user. And in general, I mean, being 
a practitioner of mindfulness and meditation and having that be an integrated part of your life is has been shown to, to, to be, of course, wildly helpful in the pursuit of becoming superhuman. So just happy to hear that overall. Um, let's dive into that. Let's dive into that. And I want to start off with, I'm going to talk about a term that we talk about frequently in the class that I teach. So my, my students will be familiar with this topic, but I, I call them identity-based beliefs. Identity-based beliefs are beliefs that run in the background so much of our human behavior. Identity-based beliefs are narratives that we believe about ourselves. Things that we say about who we are as people that dictate so much of our behavior on a daily basis. Some of these identity-based beliefs, in my experience working with folks especially in the past couple of years, could be, I'm really busy all the time. I struggle with being stressed. I struggle with being stressed. I'm just an anxious person. I have a hard time with sleep. These are some of the identity-based beliefs that I have heard circulating in my classroom and across campus, off campus, et cetera, over the past couple of years. When we say things about who we are, the type of person we are, we limit ourselves almost automatically. This can either be leveraged and used to our advantage, or it can be hurtful and it could limit us and actually create illusory boundaries in the ways in which we actually show up as people. And I'll talk about a positive example and a negative example, if it's all right. We'll just dive into this. Yes. Yeah. A positive example of this might be, I'll take my own relationship with meditation. I believe in my bones that I am a meditator. I have not meditated today. That doesn't change the fact that I'm a meditator. I could have skipped my meditation all week, heck, all month. That does not mean that I am not a meditator. I believe in my bones that I am a meditator. Do I need to have a daily habit to be a meditator? Nope, not my book. But that also means that I am more likely a month from now in a moment of weakness when I need it the most to turn to meditation because I am a meditator. It is just a part of who I am. I know that and I believe that about myself. I do not need to keep up with it every single day to turn to it when I need it. On the flip, I might tell myself that I struggle with stress. I'm just an anxious person. When I say that over and over and over again, this comes up in conversation with friends. Friends will ask me, hey, Sahar, how are you? How, how have you been doing? And I, and I consistently respond, oh, busy. Life has just been crazy. I've just been busy. Then I'm feeding this belief about myself, about my identity, that no matter what's going on, no matter how many things change in the world around me, I remain an anxious person. I remain a busy, anxious, stressed out person. So I'm feeding this narrative, this belief about myself, this story about myself. And the more I feed the story, the more robust it becomes even in my own mind. And the more robust it becomes in my own mind, the harder it is for me to be anything besides that. I am a busy person. I can't not be. It's just who I am. 
I keep telling myself that. People tell me that. They say, oh, Sahar, she's always busy. So if there's if there are narratives to whoever is listening that you all recognize that you're holding on to, that you think are not serving you, I would push you all to discard them as soon as possible. And one of the best weapons you have in this fight against identity-based beliefs that do not serve you are beliefs that are orthogonal to the beliefs you're trying to fight. If you believe right now that you are just an anxious person, this is just the way I am. This is just my personality. First of all, there's no such thing as a personality. I can tell you that as a neuroscientist. You can come to my lab. I will give you a pill in 15 minutes. You will be behaving and believing and feeling things that you would have never imagined you would feel, think, behave. Our constructs of who we are are very flimsy. They're malleable. They're not real. Which is, again, uplifting and exciting because it means there's no such thing as Kevin. There's no such thing as Gorov. There's no such thing as Sahar. We are not real. We are as we design ourselves to be. We are who we choose to be. But it does mean that the implicit stories that we tell ourselves about who we are are really powerful. The beliefs that we hold, the narratives, the stories that we hold onto about who we are and the behaviors with which we exhibit those are so deeply powerful and they need to be audited. So pausing as many times as you can throughout your life and asking yourself, do I, what are my beliefs about me? What are my beliefs about the world around me? Are my beliefs serving me? Are my stories that I'm holding onto, are they serving me? Or can I tell a different story? And my recommendation to, to, to everyone listening is, if there aren't that many stories about yourself that you love, fake it till you make it. Make it up. Tell yourself the narrative about how you don't believe in being busy. You want to push back on being just a quote unquote busy person. You want to push back on being an anxious individual or struggling with stress. Guess what? You should hold the belief about yourself that you don't believe in busy. Tell yourself that every single day. I don't believe in this whole busy culture. I don't believe in this whole hashtag rise and grind culture that's being perpetuated in the 21st century. It's bullshit. I don't believe in it. I consider myself a hyper-prioritizer. Tell yourself the beliefs, inject the stories and craft them every single day into your life and give those an opportunity to grow. Water them just like you would plants in a garden. And start to deprive water for plants that honestly just do not serve you. And they're creating more stress and more anxiety in your life than you need to give yourself, get, get, that you wanna give space to. You know, uh, you brought up so many interesting points right there. Uh, a part of me feels like we should be clapping. Um, so many things I wanna jump in from there. Um, it's just off the top of my head, this idea of busyness is really fascinating for us. And it was throughout college, you know, there's that idea of it, that competition of who's sleeping less or who's doing this. More. Yeah. And it is a crazy mentality. And 
something that I did try to pivot myself really early on was to stop saying that I'm busy and saying not that I was too busy for this, but it wasn't a priority. It wasn't my most priority. And that subtle mind shift really affected me as well, because I know something that I struggle with um, is kind of all or nothing thinking. That idea that um, if I if it's not the perfect moment, if I can't do every if I can't start running for two hours every day, um, if I can't change my life completely, that I procrastinate and push it back. So, yeah, that's definitely something that's affected me very heavily. And something we talked a lot about here is that idea that storylines push us and confine us. And it's why it's so important that we understand the running narratives and the running storytelling aspects we are telling ourselves. I completely agree, right? It's what you're really saying. What I'm hearing you say is audit, question those storylines, question them, become aware of them. And is that the story that you want to tell about yourself? If it's not serving you, get it out, get it out of your head, get it out of your life and inject something that does serve you. And even if it's aspirational, this is what I, this is what I, I, I really want to make sure that we're highlighting here. Even if you're making it up for in the beginning, you will aspire, you will aspire and rise to the occasion of living your life in line with that belief and in that narrative. Just give it time, right? I love that what you're saying here is that idea that it's, you're not saying get rid of all your storylines. They're making, they're limiting your personality. You're saying, look at the storylines that serve you. As with any tool, as with any skill, there are good and there's bad aspects of it. You can use it properly. You can use it incorrectly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And making up good stories about yourself and the world is, I think, an underutilized technique for success. Let's keep digging into this whole concept of of story briefly for a second. There's a researcher um, out of Stanford that studies stress for a living. And something that she came across in her research is that adopting a mindset of quote unquote stress helps can do wonders for mitigating and avoiding some of the negative side effects of high stress. So let's let's unpack this briefly for a second together. This means that in the face of stress, a stressful life, I've got deadlines, I've got projects, they're urgent. I have a million and one personal responsibilities I need to get to that I'm also juggling. In the face of all of these things that are objectively potentially stressful, what if stress wasn't bad? What if I viewed stress as a good thing? Because guess what? What is stress really, physiologically speaking? Stress, physiologically, is a set of mechanisms, neurochemical and other, that gives my brain and body the energy that I so desperately need to fight, to flee, or to do stuff in my life. That is all that stress is. It's a little bit of cortisol, some adrenaline. It's good stuff. I need stress. Stress is an indication that I care. Stress is an indication that I care about this thing in front of me and that my brain and my body are working, thank goodness, and they're give, it's giving me the energy that I need to do stuff with it. And if I, next time I start to feel stressed out, I go, oh, wonderful. Ooh, I can feel the stress in my body. Stress helps. 
I'm so glad that I'm feeling this nice boost of cortisol. I'm so glad that I'm feeling this so that I can actually rise to the occasion and deal with the stuff in my life that I need to deal with. Adopting the mindset of stress helps has been shown to actually decrease the negative side effects of stress. That I remember happening upon that research really changed my mind, my own personal mind about my relationship with stress. Stress is not bad. We need stress. By the way, also stress is good for your immune system. I would never wish a life of no stress on anyone. It would be terrible, especially not right now during a pandemic. Stress is good for your immune system. You need stress. The piece about stress that is not good is that it shouldn't be chronic. Meaning I should not be stressed out for every little thing all of the time. You should be stressed and then not stressed. Stressed and then not stressed. And in this nice little cycle. It's that rumination, right? It's, it's that getting sucked into one thing and ruminating and feeling that stress and taking it on too much that I feel like that affects me most. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? So the cr chronic stress is actually defined as stress that you experience too long and too often without closing it out. So if we take a step back and we say evolutionarily, human beings, by the way, are designed to experience stress in what are called short and complete cycles. Short and complete cycles. That means an emergency happens. Let's say, for example, a lion walks into your office and you go, ah, it's a lion. Crap. And in that moment, you get a spike in cortisol and adrenaline, right? Your body kicks into your body. Again, it's giving you the energy that you need to do stuff. So it's giving you good hormones, nice glucocorticoids, stress hormones, so that you can do stuff, protect yourself, hide, fight, flee, do something in the face of the stressor. Evolutionarily, at some point, you do run away from the lion. You're able to successfully hide. Probably not fight, let's be honest. So let's just say you successfully hide. And then that stress goes away. You've completed that stress cycle. Something stressed you out. So you get this uptick in stress and then the stressor goes away. So you get this nice down regulation. Short and complete cycles. That is what stress is supposed to be in our brains and bodies, ideally. But what about the 21st century? What does our day look like? I wake up in the morning, I check my email, and I see 50 emails that have already come in while I've been sleeping. And before I have an opportunity to deal with those emails, I need to jump into my first meeting, I need to jump into a class, I need to do this, I need to do that. And I don't even have time to deal with all those emails that have come in. And what am I doing in between all of my, my meetings, classes, and so on and so forth? I'm checking my email again. And I'm seeing this massive to-do list accrue. So I see on top, I see all of these stressors, all of these stressors continue to accrue, one on top of the other, one on top of the other. So I see this uptick in cortisol, then I, ju I jump to a different task and I see another uptick in cortisol and I'm never really closing anything out. I never complete these stress cycles. So instead of having stress be again, a short and complete cycle, as in, I got an email that just came in that's stressful. Let me sit down and deal with it immediately. You sit down, you deal with it, you send it off, take a deep breath, and I'm done. Move on, move on to the next thing. That's not what life looks like. I see the email and I don't even have time to respond to it and I moved on to a different thing. I have to come back to it later. So instead of having stress, being dealt with in what are these, these short and complete cycles, they become this, it becomes this infinite loop. So it's death by a thousand paper cuts. 
it's these tiny little upticks in cortisol that never get closed out. And then you get chronic stress. That's what chronic stress is. It's stress that I never really finish dealing with. I'm always perpetually a little bit stressed out, constantly navigating these tiny little stressors. While I'm navigating my life, I've gotten two missed calls, 15 unread text messages. I haven't even read the news yet. It's all of these things that I hope to do that I want to do. And I just simply don't seem to have the time or the bandwidth to do them. So I get these tiny little upticks in cortisol. And quite frankly, I feel like shit. That's when you start to get burnout. That's when you get the negative side effects of chronic stress. So what I would suggest pushing back against is again, this, uh, well, first of all, perfectionism need, need to go out the window. And more importantly, finding time every single day to close out and complete these stress cycles. Have a ritual at the end of your day, no matter how crazy your day is, for you to actually close out and ground yourself every single day, once a day. I would recommend at the end of your day to just sit down, reflect, and close out. Feel, visualize yourself grounding like an actual, uh, like an electrical circuit, just into the ground that you are releasing all of that anxiety, you are releasing all of that stress so that we have a fighting chance. One, in, cha in changing those beliefs again about, about um, stress. Stress is not bad, stress is good. Stress makes us strong, stress helps. These are the beliefs, right? The stories that we tell ourselves, stress helps. I'm not a stressed out person. These like, little things are just giving me energy. Stress isn't bad, I welcome stress. Say that to yourself for once. I welcome stress. Why? Because I'm going to have time at the end of my day today to close all of my stressors out. My days are crazy, but I ground myself at the end of every single day. Let that be the story we tell ourselves. Yeah, it's that idea of habit forming and um, reframing things that is it's so incredibly powerful um, that I've seen in my own life. And I think when it comes to habits, something I struggle with is going back to that all or nothing thinking where it's like, if I do it for a few days and then I miss a couple of days and I'm like, well, what's the point, right? So, and that again is a story that I'm telling myself where I'm like, oh, it didn't do any good because I missed one day, but reframing it to see the power and reframing it to see uh, that how positive it can be just to come up and show up for yourself is so important. I would definitely agree. On the topic of habit formation, I would add, adopt as much as possible the mindset of a scientist. And what I mean by that is that it is a part of the very fabric of what it means to be a scientist to fail. It is, by, it is, it is a part of the very fabric of the pursuit of science to fail. It is a natural and welcomed part of this process. Every day we expect to fail. If we are not failing, then we are not doing it right. It's not a reflection of who you are. It's just negative data. You're learning about yourself. Today, you didn't get to meditate. Doesn't mean you're not a meditator. Today, you just happen to not do it. We can learn from it. What was the missed opportunity? When did you think of doing it? And why did you decide not to? It's just an opportunity to learn. It's just data. It's all just data. Collect the data and move forward. But it's not a reflection of who you are as a person. I love that. That's awesome. That's such a great reframing. That's such a great story to tell yourself. For sure. And uh, going back to uh, the, the idea of stress and stress cycle for a bit, how have you seen 
the age of Zoom affected stress? <laughs> oh boy. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's dive into video fatigue. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll go through, there's quite a bit of research to share on this topic, um, but I'll, I'll go over a couple of uh, sort of high level points here. First and foremost, video fatigue is real. So if you haven't heard the new research that's come out in the past year, I will be the first to tell you video fatigue is real. It's measurable. Okay. That means the same exact conversation, the same people involved, the same conversation over video versus in person, the video is more draining. It actually measurably takes the brain more effort and energy to pay attention to the same meeting compared to its in-person counterpart. So if you have been recently feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted with all these Zoom calls, you're not alone. You're not alone. It is measurably more draining. Specifically, what is different? In the brain, video versus in person, more beta waves. Beta waves are a marker of alertness and attention. It's essentially a proxy for us neuroscientists to study how much effort your brain is putting in to focus on whatever is in front of you. How much efforts do I need to put in to pay attention to Kevin and what Kevin's saying, for example. And measurably, the brain requires more beta. It uses more beta waves to pay attention to the same content over video compared to in person. That means if Kevin is calling me on the telephone or I get to see Kevin for a cup of coffee in person, it requires X amount of beta. If all of a sudden now we're on a Zoom call together, it is requiring 2X the amount of beta for me to listen to the same exact thing that Kevin is saying. So if you think about it from a financial standpoint, it is more expensive to have the same conversation with Kevin over video than it would be in person. Now, that's just the fact of the matter. Let's talk about some of the, 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 what about the video is making it so draining, okay? What about the video is making it so draining? First and foremost, self-view. This is a new phenomenon that so many of us have been experiencing, I would say in silence, which is we, we're on these video calls. And if you can see yourself, y'all know what you're doing. You're just staring at yourself, you know it. You're in Zoom and yep. you're perpetually looking at yourself. Yeah. All right? Okay. You're not alone, by the way. You're not alone. And it has nothing to do with vanity, in case anyone was wondering. It has nothing to, you're not, it's, it's not about, you're not just checking yourself out for the sake of it. There's an area of the brain called the fusiform face area, or the FFA for short. And this brain area has kind of one job and one job only, and that is to process human faces. You cannot turn it off. There's no off switch. You are perpetually processing everyone else's face, but especially your own face if you have access to it. So if you can see your own face in your own image, you will be background processing it. You cannot help it and you cannot turn it off. This is the number one energy drainer, cognitively speaking, in a video meeting. My number one recommendation, if you have Zoom, hover over your own image. Find your face in the Zoom call. Hover over your own image. In the upper right-hand corner of your own image, you will see an ellipses, three dots. Hit that button and you're going to see a drop-down menu and you're going to see a button called Hide Self View. And no, I do not work for Zoom. You're going to see a button <laughs> called Hide Self View. And then you can hit that there and then you won't see yourself. Other people can still see you. I'm not saying turn your video off. They can still see you. You just can't see yourself. You know, kind of like a normal conversation. Remember when we used to see each other in person? And you could see my face, but I couldn't see my own face. Yeah, that's kind of normal, don't you think? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've had so many students tell me, what do you mean? I don't want to be what, what it's make it makes me uncomfortable. They can see me, but I can't see me. What are you talking about? That's totally normal. There's nothing, <laughs> there's 
nothing more biologically unnatural than you to see your own face during a conversation. There is not like think about just like the animal kingdom. Like in what world do you look at your own image and reflection when you're like, talking to another person? Can you imagine how silly it would be if I was on a date with somebody at a restaurant? And then instead of focusing on, on my date across the table, I have like a compact open and I'm just staring at my own face during the entire conversation. I'm checking out my hair. I'm like fixing my makeup, like doing Lord knows what. Of course, it's totally biologically unnatural for us to see ourselves during a conversation with another human. So my number one recommendation, Google Meet has a new minimize button. So if you use Google Meet, you can do it there. It's, it's like the arrows that are pointing at each other. Figure out, look at Google it, all right? <laughs> Hopefully you're young enough and you're listening where you can figure this out, but hide self view. It is by far the most biggest drain on our cognitive resources during a video meeting compared to any other aspect of a video meeting. Yeah, I'm going to start doing that. And just to provide one data point, I see the, the, the effect of self view on zoom working its way back to my in-person conversation at this point. Cause I, I distinctly remember having this, uh, having an in-person conversation a couple of weeks ago. And then I, at the end of that, I started thinking to myself, how did I look? Oh, no. When I was mean at the other person face to face because I was so used to being able to watch myself all the time on Zoom. But yeah, that I, I definitely you know relate to that. And uh, isn't that so scary? That. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh my goodness! And oh, by the way, here's a fun little tidbit. Did you guys? Did you? Do you both know that Botox sales has been through the roof since COVID started? I did not know that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It is all interconnected. People are horrified, unfortunately, with what they're seeing. And you shouldn't be. It's your faces. Everyone's face. It is what it is. It is what it is, guys. <laughs> Focus <laughs> on the knowledge you bring to the table. Focus on how you show up on the inside as a human being. But Botox sales have been through the roof since COVID began. And now we're starting to see a lot of folks investing in a wide variety of different things. They're looking into dental work, cosmetic dentistry, so, um, you know, uh, is starting to, to also shoot up. There's a lot of secondary and tertiary effects of us forcing ourselves to look at ourselves throughout the course of the day. So I would say get a handle on it, get a jump on it um, early if you can, and get in, and stop staring at yourself. <laughs> Will do. That's, uh, that's such an important message. To wrap up uh, our episode, we have this segment called Suspenders. It works like this. Uh, we ask you a random fun question that's totally unrelated to anything whatsoever. And you'll give us any random fun answer you feel like. All right. So our question of the day is, if you are hired to show tourists what life really is like where you live, what would you show them or what would you have them do? Oh, Kevin, this one is a heartbreaking one. Um, I, for those who are listening, um, am from the Bay Area in California. So think San Francisco, Silicon Valley. Born and raised actually here in the Bay Area. It is my village. I'm quite proud of it. However, it has changed a lot over the years. It is one of the most expex expensive areas in the world. And we also have one of the largest homeless populations in the entire world, all in one place. So. I would show folks the bittersweet reality that is a hallmark of the Bay Area. I would probably take them to an area that I actually used to live in, which is the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And I would sit beneath one of the most 
amazing, extraordinary, and expensive pieces of real estate in the entire world. And I would stand and take these tourists to that one location, telling them that a one bedroom apartment can cost somebody over a million dollars to buy USD. And in this proximity, I see folks that do not have enough money to feed themselves or their children. The economic disparity that we're experiencing right now in the Bay Area is heartbreaking. Um, and I know that there's uh, folks like myself and a lot of other organizations that are working tirelessly to try to decrease this economic divide that we see. In the area that people look towards uh, the Silicon Valley, and there are articles written about it, videos, shows, movies now, right, that depict the innovation mindset, the futurism that exists here. We're the modern day Venice, but we are struggling to make sure that all of our kids do not go hungry on a daily basis. There is a dark side to it, and, these, and, the, and the dark side is systemic. So, I don't know, that's a, it's a depressing uh, answer to your question that you may not have been expecting, but that is where I would take you. No, that's I mean, very important one. Yeah, very important, and it even ties to storytelling a little bit. Where you were talking about the depictions of the Bay Area and Silicon Valley in media, because unless you're in it, unless you see it every day, the stories that are told about it is vastly different. And um, I spent some time in the Bay. I completely understand what you're saying, and it's so important in storytelling that we are showing accurate depictions for people who have never been, because it living in somewhere and visiting somewhere and seeing somewhere on TV is just so different. It's so important that we are telling stories in representative and accurate ways. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week was really cool because we had the cognitive psychologist, Dr. Sahar Yusuf, who is an expert storyteller about the stories we tell ourselves. Kev, how impactful was this conversation? Yeah, Grov, as we've gone over early on in this episode, we tell stories to ourselves about ourselves all the time. And it, uh, we cannot stop thinking about it. We just kind of physically can't. And uh, we went over this idea of uh, identity-based beliefs, which are narratives we believe of ourselves stories we keep feeding ourselves um, that keep running in the back of our minds uh, that they end up um, kind of controlling or dictating the way we act um, the way we behave yeah you know it's something that anyone who's like me and you know practices and studies mindfulness and meditation knows that it's something that's so important to how we view the world, how we view ourselves. The power of internal storytelling is just that. It's a superpower. And it's something we know from doing this podcast. It's something that we really want to study more because it's maybe the most important part of storytelling, the stories we tell ourselves. And what's really interesting about what we're talking about Sahara uh, and in identity-based beliefs is a reminder that there's so many stories that we tell ourselves that we get down on ourselves and the chatter and the loud voices of negativity that can limit ourselves. And the labels we put on ourselves can limit ourselves, but it can also empower us. It can also frame the world in a positive way. 
it depends on how you're using storytelling. And this kind of reminds me of something we talked with Avery Truffleman about as well, about external storytelling and how it can be used for good, like podcasting, like talking to people, like uh, journalists, or evil, like con men. And it's the same exact thing, but internally. In the end, storytelling is a tool. And if we use it correctly, if we use it in a healthy, mindful way, we can reframe our story and view the world in a much more positive and healthier light. And that is just so incredibly powerful. Exactly. So what kind of stories are we going to feed ourselves? Is it, oh, I'm busy, I have trouble sleeping, or I'm a meditator, but that does not mean I have to do it every single day or every literally every moment. That's all I think about. If I, you know, if I don't do it, do it today, that does not necessarily have to change how I define myself or how I view myself. I don't exactly. have to feel bad about. It. So if you ever find that um, a, a narrative or story that you are believing about yourself is doing you harm, as Sahar told us, try to pick up a different story. That is uh, going to be more uh, healthy and uh, constructive for you. We barely scratched the surface on so many topics, so we're definitely going to have her back. We're definitely going to talk more about this and go out, turn off self-view in your long, long Zoom meetings, and reframe your stories because you're all doing great. It's a really difficult time, and we love you. You're doing amazing. Keep being great and keep being fabulous. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Sahar Yusuf, for letting us realize the importance of storytelling to ourselves. Have a good one.